Welcome to The Best Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Bradley H. Werrell, and we're here to explore options and potentials to help us grow as individuals and as a community with one another in these difficult times and challenging times. We're exploring all manner of potentials related to the human experience, physical, psychological, medical, spiritual. It's a wonderful opportunity that we now experience in this critical phase of our human evolution. And I welcome you to join us in our podcast, become more aware and identify with people who are helpful and supportive of you in your efforts as a human being on this planet and elsewhere too. We're going to be meeting people who are doing things that are widely variant from what is so-called normal within our society. In the creative space, within the social space, our common purpose, seeking to generate positive potentials to improve the lives of everyone in our sphere of influence and to expand that sphere of influence so that we may positively influence others that are not yet engaged directly with us. That's the goal here. We will learn more about each other as we go. I wish you the very best. Thank you very much for tuning in. Is this the fourth one we've done? I don't know. I don't, I call it. I think it is. <laughs> That's all right. I, 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 I might've been on the most so far. I don't know how, who, who else you've so talked for. That's yeah. right. Keep it that way. That's right. Yeah. So we're back with Garrett Daly here on uh, the Best Medicine Podcast with your host, Bradley H. Werrell. Garrett's going to tell us a little bit about how he came to be what he is and exactly what he does, just to kind of give us a background information about the gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Um, I have a very, I've had like 15 jobs. I've had a very weird life. Uh, I, at some point shortly after high school, I kind of was like, oh, it'd be kind of weird if you told me a year ago I was doing this, I wouldn't have believed you. And then the pace of that increased enough that it's like every six months or so, it'd be like, yeah, I would not have expected to be doing this. And so I just kind of don't anticipate what I'm going to be doing anymore. And you'll kind of see why, uh, I guess. So, so let's see. I don't know. When I was, uh, when I was a kid, like you know, I was in high school and stuff. I really wanted to design cities or something, something to that extent. And like, there's urban planning, but there really isn't a job for that. Really, nobody does that. Um, so I never really, there was never really a job for what I wanted to do. But I was into a lot of stuff uh, in high school. Some of my varied interests included uh, filmmaking. I wrote a, a script for a zombie movie and tried to get, uh, I got a bunch of people signed up to do it, but nobody showed up. So nobody actually did it, but I did build, I had like a, a, a dummy, uh, like a, a dummy made out of a, a flight suit and uh, duct tape and newspaper that we were, you know, like stunt double thing <laughs> to throw it off the roof. And I built like a, we built like a chain gun out of a, a rotary sander and some, some wood, <laughs> like PVC pipes. That was pretty cool. So I don't know. So we did that for a while. I was at one point wanted to be a stage magician. Um, not, wow. So I was into a lot of weird stuff. Make uh, I wanted to make a video game. So I started learning, teaching myself how to do like 3D uh, modeling, and I built a team for that. And then nobody, nobody helped. So that was a it's kind of a recurring theme of my young life. It's like oh nobody, nobody actually wants to do any work. So I became very like solitary in my pursuits, I guess. Um, 
And so basically, I don't know, I, uh, I got a speeding ticket when I was in high school and I, I, I was graduating early. So I was, you know, like I had my car for like three months. I lost my license because I was going very, very fast. Uh, so the only job I could get out of high school, because I didn't want to go to college at the time, um, I just was, I don't know, I have problems with the educational system. So the only job I could have was working for my neighbor, who was a painter. Um, he ran a painting company. My best friend, uh, or one of my best friends at the time, lived next door to me and his dad ran a painting company. And so I would ride in with them every day at like five o'clock in the morning. We'd go drive two hours to Goldsboro from Jacksonville, work all day, and then ride two hours back, wow. go home and go to bed. Yeah, that was it. Long that was my whole life for, yeah. Uh, sometimes we had to get up at four. We, had, we went out on most weekends too. So I was, you know, working nonstop, nonstop. Uh, and that was my, you know, I worked at Burger King before that, but that was like, a, you know, when I was in high school, that wasn't full time. So my first job was like much more full time than the average. We were probably working 60, 70 hours a, a week. And I've kind of done that for most of my career. I've worked, uh, I just taught tons. Uh, so I did that for about a year and a half and ended up, uh, I don't know, I just didn't, didn't care for it, but it was good money at the time. I get my uh, license back, I get a car. I started uh, working for a company called professional solutions llc which is the most generic business name ever they did contracting for marine uh special operations command uh so while that sounds very cool in reality my job was i was basically a glorified janitor but we were paid very very well um and so we did support and like i was a site coordinator so we set up facilities and did janitorial stuff and some other actual fun stuff that i'm not supposed to talk about um, for the Marine Corps uh, Special Operations Command Assessment and Selection Program. So when they're picking dudes for MARSOC, which is like the Marine Corps uh, equivalent of the Green Berets effectively, right? Or, or what have you, I don't know. If there's any, if there are any operators out there listening to this, don't shoot me for that comparison. So apologies to you, but everyone else, you can pretend like that's sufficient. Um, and so, that was that was pretty great uh i did that for a while it was like a month at a time so i did that and then i came back and i got a job building fences and then i was also working at a movie store at the time which was one of the best jobs i ever had uh, i really loved that so i was working at the movie store you know in between periods at uh in in virginia working at apl and i started uh, that was my first experience with sales right and I kind of resolved because uh, my dad was like a special operations Marine. He did, you know, he was uh, he was a sniper and then he was a recon and then he was in uh, debt one and then he was in MARSOC. And now he's the deputy director of the MARSOC school. Like, so he's just a hardcore badass dude. And I thought about going to the military for a while, but I kind of resolved. I was like, well, I'm never going to be able to beat my dad at his own game. So if I'm going to surpass him, I have to beat him at something he didn't he wasn't good at. And like my dad's good at all kinds of shit. He, he's very, very talented, dude. Uh, but he's not a people person at all. And I'm not by nature either, but I resolved that I was going to, that was, that was the thing. I was like, all right, I can, I could definitely beat him at that. Cause he's put no effort into it. And it's not as, it's not as big. Right. So I saw sales as a way to get into that. Right. Cause that was my weakness. Cause I am very much an introvert. I'm very much a uh, reclusive kind of bookworm person. And, and it, it may not seem that way for me now, but like, that was, that's, that's where I come from. Right. And so I was, I don't know, I had a very wonderful manager, Miss Julie, uh, at, uh, who like was very, like very much pushy. She was hardcore. 
Uh, and I started doing sales, selling uh, magazine subscriptions and some other fun, like uh, coupon cards and stuff like that. And I ended up being like number three in the region. So like out of multiple states. Um, and I was like, all right, I, kind of, I pretty much got this as much as I think I can get it. Now, now what? And so the, uh, there was a hair straightener kiosk outside of the movie store at the mall that I worked at. And I went out uh, to go smoke a cigarette with uh, the guy, the, the guy who ran the kiosk. And he was like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I sell stuff at the movie store. He's like, you do sales? I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, what do you do? He's like, oh, I sell hair straighteners. I was like, oh, that's cool. He's like, you want to do it? And so I was like, no. But I went home <laughs> and thought about it. And I, I told my parents, I was like, hey, the guy at the hair straightener kiosk in the mall gave me a job. And they like laughed at me. They're like, you're an idiot. That's, that's stupid. I was like, I'm going to do it. So I did. And um, at this point, I was working, you know, I was working for... There was a part of, you know, because most of the time I spent doing the contracting was in Virginia. Uh, but before in the earlier stages, uh, we were down at uh, Stone Bay. So I would wake up, I would wake up like at somebody's house because we partied all the time at like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, drive down to Stone Bay, oh, wake up, go do uh, whatever, like stand in the woods and click a counter while I'm counting dudes running by at four o'clock in the morning on some kind of like two hour long run. And then I would like go drive into town at like eight go work at the movie store for a couple hours, get off at like one or three or something. I would go change clothes, go and work on the hair straightener kiosk and start learning oh, wow. how to sell hair straighteners. It was nuts. I was nuts. I, you know, that was, that was probably the most I ever worked until recently. Uh, Cause I, I currently do have, uh, you know, somewhere between a fluctuating number of jobs higher than two. Um, and so I don't know. So it was weird. Uh, it was very weird at first. All the people that run those kiosks in the malls are generally Israelis. It's actually different. Uh, different. Uh, pretty much every mall has a collection of immigrants in them that do different things. So the Israelis run the high pressure kiosk almost all the time. Uh, and then you have like the Indian dudes and Pakistani dudes that run like the gold kiosk or like the, the, the passive kiosk, if you want to call them that, not the active sales kiosk. Uh, and so I don't know. So it's just like that's an interesting fact about malls. It's pretty much seems to be true everywhere. I have no idea why that's the case, but it seems to be the case. So, so I don't know. So the Israelis called me Gingy. Uh, they're like, oh, Gingy, Gingy, yada. Uh, and uh, they, I started learning how to do it. I really wasn't that good because uh, I'm not very, I'm not that pushy of a salesperson. But I kind of eventually got decent enough at it. And I remember. There was, this is like a defining moment of my life. I remember getting, uh, after the best week I had, this envelope with some Hebrew written on it. It's like a blank envelope with like 2,200 bucks in cash. And I had never, ever seen this much money in my life. You know, I, like, it was like, in, especially in cash in my hands that I earned. I was like, this is awesome. So, so for the next two weeks, I would wake up at someone's house and go drive to the mall and buy new clothes and eat out for every meal. We go out and party every night. I did this every single day and I still didn't run out of money at the end of the two weeks. I was like, after this, I was like, I really don't care that much about money anymore, which is a bad thing because is now I'm not very motivated financially. So uh, that, that comes with a host of other problems, but eventually, I don't know. I did that for like six months. Uh, I was getting kind of fed up with that. And also a lot of like, you know, I was uh, partying in town and I just Jacksonville, North Carolina is kind of a terrible place. And so I was like, all right, I need to get out of town. I'm going to go to school because that was the only way I could think of to get out. So I go to NC State. I made a deal. I was like, all right, if I get into school, I'm never doing sales again. Huh. Um, and so I got, I got into school. 
uh, for business or yeah, marketing into pool college of management. Um, while I was in school, I think uh, there's a, I forgot one job. I was a roofing inspector for three days somewhere in that part. I don't remember when, but yes. Uh, anyway, uh, while I was in school, uh, the first semester I kind of like, I tried and, you know, it was, it was interesting. The uh, second semester, I really wasn't feeling it. Uh, I even was taking more interesting classes, but I just don't, I have serious problems with the educational system. I really don't care for it. And by the third semester, I, I, uh, I think at the, my second semester, I got like 66.7. So I was like 0.1 above failing. And I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to ride it out and have a good time. And uh, right before I was going to fail out in my third semester, it was like a week before the end of the semester. And it was like exams are coming up. And I was it, at this point, I was done. I didn't really have that much of a plan. I was going, my only plan was I was going to write... Um, Robert Allison, who's the former CEO of BB&T, who uh, when they, they came with the bank bailouts, um, he refused to take them. I always thought that was very cool, you know, during the financial crisis and he stepped down. So I figured I was going to write him a letter like, hey, man, I'm in this debt, but I'll literally be like your indentured servant if you'll like pay off my debt. I'll shine your shoes or something. And that was all of my that was my plan. It wasn't a good plan. But so like a week before exams come before school's over and then I'm you know asked out. Uh, my buddy hits me up, one of my buddies from the kiosk, and he was like, hey, you want to start a business? I was like, yes, I do. So <laughs> perfect. It's another one of those synchronicities, you know. Um, so I end up going the week of exams. Uh, I drive up to New York with him and we meet up with another friend of mine and we hash out this business, which is Freedom Way Waste Valet or what, what would have been our first startup. So initially, I was actually not brought in as a C-suite level person. I was just going to do all the work because uh, they're both very lazy. Uh, and so we ended up losing one of the two uh, very early on because he didn't do anything. And then I kind of like worked my way up as far as the, uh, you know, I did a bunch of stuff and then I built the website and that's how I got into building websites. And then I did the brand, which is how I got into doing brands. And then I did wrote all the copies. So I know a little bit of that. And, I, you know, we were pitching all the time and doing all this. And so we did it for about a year. I was living in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And we had, I mean, it was cool. We, that was probably the, that was probably one of the coolest times ever. Uh, we, you know, we got to make all kinds. Of, I built like the, the big banners and we did a coat drive and we had these, uh, these little like dollhouse sized trash cans that we filled up with candy and business cards and then put our logo on and delivered to some of the people that we were pitching to just all, we went all out with it. It was nuts because we were just, you know, trying to think and trying to think of different ways to make it work. And we redid the business plan all the time. But after a year of this, uh, we just, you know, we were done. We were done. It was it, nobody was particularly passionate about, uh, you know, multifamily housing, valet trash services, uh, as as I can't imagine many people are. So it was hard to it was hard to keep pushing with very little, like basically no uh, positive feedback for any longer than that. So at that point, uh, my buddy went on vacation, and I was back working in Virginia at the time. Um, and he gives me a call, and he's like, "Hey, uh, you want to move to Colorado?" And I was like, yeah, let's do it, you know? So it's like a year a year after we, he was like, hey, you want to start a business? He just gives me another random call. of like, hey, you want to uproot your life completely? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. This is, that's, this is kind of where, where the direction that things have gone is, you know, it's like, I have no idea what's going on anymore, but I'm trying, I'm, I'm down for the, the insanity, you know? Um, so we go to Colorado. I get a job working in a microchip factory. I'm also, in this point, I was briefly homeless for a little while. 
because uh, he was trying to buy a house and then we were staying somewhere, but it took longer. And then I was out living under a rock on a mountain uh, in, in Colorado and in, in, uh, in Colorado Springs for a couple of days. Uh, but then we ended up moving into a, a, a motel for like a month. And then we ended up living with also a Mormon uh, or ex-Mormon couple. They, they moved into the hotel room with us and the guy like the guy who ran the motel knew that we had extra people in there, but he couldn't prove it. So we were like, oh my. It, was, yeah. <laughs> it just gets crazier. Yeah. No, uh, so, so we did that and then he finally gets his place. But um, I had kind of resolved at this point that um, I really, really, really didn't want to be dependent on anyone. You know, we, you know, me and my business partner at the time, we had had some issues and I was, you know, coming out of college, I was kind of a mooch. Uh, and I really wasn't taking responsibility for stuff. So I, I, this is, you know, this is when I decided I was going to start really turning things around. Um, and so around, uh, around the, somewhere in that time is when I did the first, like the 40 day fast. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, while I was living in the hotel room, I call up a buddy of mine, Arda from, from college, Arda Cole, who's, uh, he's a, got several North Carolina state powerlifting records, or at least he did for oh, yeah. a while. Uh, he's a big, big dude. Yeah. Um, and he, I was talking to him. I was like, man, I really need to start writing. Cause I have these books that I want to write in the future and I need to start practicing. And he's like, oh yeah, man, I'm thinking about doing a, uh, uh, I would do like a weightlifting blog and stuff. It's like, well, what if we just combined it and it'd be like self-improvement thing. Cause I really just wanted to write about philosophy and stuff. Sure. And then we get the website we had master self. And so we, I don't know, we talked about doing it a lot of the time. Like I started writing when I was living in the hotel room. Then I was working at the microchip factory doing night shifts and that was no fun. Um, so I didn't really start writing officially until I moved to Reno. And basically the reason why I moved to Reno, when I was at work at the microchip factory, my trainer, uh, the guy who was teaching me how to run a microchip furnace was like, why are you here? You're young. You could go to Tesla and do similar factory kind of work and get paid way more. I was like, all right. I applied. I got a, uh, went, yeah, flew out to Reno, got a job there, uh, you know, on, on the spot, which is cool. And uh, basically realized the only way that I was going to be able to go there, because I was still pretty broke. I was a factory worker, you know, I wasn't making that good of money. The only way I was going to be able to make it out there where I had guaranteed income, I was going to get a raise was go live in a tent. So, because uh, I had never been to Reno, I don't know anyone in Reno. It was as far away from home as possible, basically. On you know, like home in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and so, uh, so I resolved to go live in a tent. At this point, um, we I had started building a team for Master Self, so I was finding people who wanted to write, and we were doing a podcast, which is how I got into podcasting. Although, if you ever, uh, I hope they don't exist anymore. All the the original Master Self podcasts are very very bad. Um, they're just terrible. It was <laughs> just bad podcast. But this was very, this is, you know, years ago. So it was like uh, before podcasting became everyone has a podcast. Um, so we had a team of people and we were doing that. And I'm living in this tent. It, it's like basically uh, the first night I get out there, um, I was trying to find somewhere to stay. So the state of Nevada, this is a fun fact, is uh, approximately 60 six or 67 percent blm land which is bureau land management land meaning you can live on it uh for brief periods of time meaning not more than 14 days if you get caught i of course did not get caught um so i found a spot it was like 10 minutes away from work and 10 minutes away from town off the highway out in the middle of nowhere uh it was great 
my tent got destroyed a couple times because of the weather. It was very cold. It was like November. Uh, so it's like 20 degrees. It was very windy in the desert too, because it's the high desert. It's like 7,000 feet. So, so I just kept waking up in the middle of the night uh, and just having my tent like smack oh, me in the my. face, and, like the roof's ripped off. And, oh my hand! Uh, oh yeah, that happened. That happened two times. Um, that was I don't know. I did that for a month. I was kind of done uh, working at Tesla. That was great. Um, that was a great time. It was a really, they very good hiring, very good uh, everything except their middle management is filled with psychopaths. And I think that must be a universal. But everyone else is cool. Um, so I had a good time. And during this time. Uh, I tried up until, you know, the first like six months of the blog, I tried having a team and nobody really was as motivated to write as me. And um, eventually it ended up just being me and my friend Tia ran the Instagram for a while, uh, which was uh, very much appreciated. Uh, but then it kind of, I don't know, once everyone else was off the team, I really got more motivated to write. So I wrote a ton. Um, and for after about a year of that, I started getting into Twitter, and then I started this Twitter company where there were, uh, you know, we uh, Ion Media. We wrote some books, or we wrote a book as a group, and then I realized, oh, it's kind of easy to do this Kindle publishing stuff. So I published one of, my, you know, a, a year of my stuff as my first book. Huh. I wrote some more. We uh, we put on this big, you know, we had a newsletter and a bunch of podcasts and all kinds of stuff going on, and. We put on a conference at the end of 2019 that uh, was very, very cool, but there was some uh, chaos associated with the Twitter universe that kind of led to the downfall of my company. And this is also after I, I had just moved back to Raleigh in June of 2019 and kind of, I don't know, I you know published my second book. Um, and then I kind of decided to focus more on like, uh, different different stuff less less online stuff right so the reason that i moved back to north carolina is because i came back to visit for the first time in like three years uh and sunny happened to be in town i knew sunny from college we we're in the same fraternity um and we had just had a chance to meet up and started talking about this uh, thing that he wanted to do he was like oh yeah what if you had this like co-working space and blah 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 blah. and i was like oh well what if you had like a co-living space blah 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 and we were like let's do it let's work on it so I came back to work on that. I get here. I have, I had no money. Uh, I had to sell all my Tesla stock to survive, which is a sad point in the story because this is when the Tesla stock before the split was worth like 200 bucks, which is the worst because I would have been rolling in the dough if I had kept, I had a bunch, I had a bunch of Tesla stock from, from working there and they, they just gave it out like candy at work. It was awesome. So that happens. Um, I end happen. up getting a job. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's stock. So, you know, we just call that water under the bridge and uh, only cry when there's beer about. So the, uh, yeah, I get back and I was trying to find a job. I almost got a bartending gig because I've served before. I really enjoy serving. I was, I was going to be fine with that. And I was freelancing on the side doing graphic design and stuff like that. And Sonny ends up getting me a job with this dude. Uh, Patrick Corwin, uh, his actual name is Patrick Vivian. Uh, he's a Canadian dude uh, who is a con artist. Uh, we didn't know this at the time, right? So uh, I am hired as the executive vice president. Uh, I should have realized early on, but this is the first, uh, I don't know. It's, I've done some other startups and stuff in the, in the middle there that I kind of left out because they're not as interesting. But this is the first one where it was like, oh, they have funding and stuff and they're gonna do okay cool right 
he's claimed to have funding. He didn't have any funding. Um, he had a, he would just go and like get, uh, get these offices and then not pay for them. And then we would just get kicked out of them. We'd go to different offices. So we did, I don't know. It was a couple months we did this. I didn't get paid for a long time. And the problem was that I was in charge of hiring all these people and training all these people and doing all this stuff. So I was, which I'm good at, I've done before. So I like built a team. Uh, one, I don't know if you've met Victor Valentine, but Victor is, uh, okay. He's a, he's a, also from the same part of Twitter as John and I, uh, in, in that same group of people, he was in my other company. So I bring literally like tell Vic, Hey, he's going to pay you fly out from California to come oh, work with my. us. I know. Right. So Vic really got screwed over in that regard. Um, we come out and eventually there was some money and we found out later that he got that money from people that shouldn't have been loaning him that money, but that it was because, because he just would like smooth talk his way through all kinds of stuff. So moral of the story, we all ended up, I quit, they all quit. And we basically reformed later as a different company. That company was called old North Mark. We became remark as right. a, uh, like, right. but with a Q uh, that was a Mark with a Q. And uh, that was, that was actually going to be really cool. We unfortunately started that company exactly two weeks before COVID oh. quarantine began. So if we had done it in a different time, probably would have been awesome. Um, of course, you know, we were like working out of, we were working out of like a, a rest, uh, not a restaurant. Uh, they have like this uh, convenience store or not a convenience store, like a grocery store downtown with a co-working space in it upstairs. We were working out of there and then you couldn't work anywhere. And then we went and worked out of uh, our friend Tim's kitchen for a while. Tim's one of the people who had been victimized by Patrick. Um, you actually, to the viewer at home, you can look up uh, Patrick Corwin fraud or Patrick Vivian fraud Canada. He will pop up. Uh, there's lots of fraud reports written about him as a fun aside. Um, huh. So at this point, I was kind of, I was getting kind of burned out because it was just like, man, it was like thing after thing after thing, just not going right. And I moved back to work on all this stuff and it just really wasn't happening. But eventually I started working at Paradigm in April or May of last year. Uh, Paradigm is Sonny's company, which I believe Sonny has been on the show. Um, to, to viewers, uh, you'll know him. And I started originally, well, I had actually done some stuff when he, he had some other people that worked there. I wrote copy for Paradigm a long time ago, and I helped them put on, uh, my company, I Media, helped them put on a event. We handled the live streaming for it in, in conjunction with uh, Oak City Productions. They handled like the filming, and I just did the streaming and the restreaming stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but so I started, and originally Sonny hired me to do a, a deck of tarot cards that were effectively called the Garo cards. It <laughs> was going to be like customized as a product that we could sell. And I was like, started working on it. I was like, yeah, you actually don't want me to do this. So I started just working on other stuff. And I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to try and sort out all these business things. Cause there's a lot of stuff here that really needs to be like tweaked. So I started doing that. And we had uh, at the time it was me and Sam Hebda, who you know, and uh, Sarah Boone was our, the lead designer. And we did that for a while and we started the Vortex, uh, which is a, you know, um, online business community built out of Discord that we run. And just, I don't know, we've been doing that. And the John John moved out to live with us, uh, John Jufre, who I believe has also been on here. Um, and that's kind of how we got where we are, I guess. <laughs> Don't try to follow those footsteps, kids. That's tough. Yeah. <laughs> but I would not recommend is, it. Yeah, a lot of 
it's a lot of chaos. It's um, it's like Pure a lot chaos. Of it's been insane. A lot of juggling going on. It's it's um, unsettling. It's because it, it's so much just uh, kind of randomness. Which is weird because I myself am a fairly like orderly person. Uh, so it's just strange because the, uh, you know, like, especially when I was like before college, when I was getting into crazy stuff, it was like, there are a lot of people I've met where it's like, okay, it makes sense that they're involved in this stuff. But for me, like, I always felt very out of place and people are like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's just weird. It's been a very weird ride to say the least. The, the question I would have would be, um, in, in, you know, do you, you're, you're, you say you don't quite know what it's turn it's going to take in six months or something like that. Do you have a plan? You know what I mean? I have, I actually have a, like a briefcase full of plans that I have uh, for different like businesses and things that I want to do. Um, my whole thing is kind of like, like when I play chess, I don't like, you, you don't plan chess to the end. You kind of learn, okay, what are some good play, places I could put my pieces in the beginning? Mm -hmm. And how do I kind of maneuver them in the mid game? And then you just kind of learn how to wing it in the end game. Cause it's right. not like you can't really plan that far ahead. Right. So my whole thing is like, all right, I have this folder full of things that I guarantee like guaranteed definitely will make money. I know they're good. I just don't have the resources to do them yet. So it's kind of been like, all right, how do I minimize my living expenses? Right. So, um, I, I try to own very little stuff. I try to, you know, not get tied into leases or whatever. So that I can stay flexible and that kind of stuff, because that's going to help me cut the costs until I can uh, get to the point where everything's sustainable. Um, so right now, I don't know. There's a couple things that I've got going on. Um, I my main goal. I'm working on an app. Uh, I'm developing an app. We're in the early stages. So it's not development yet, but uh, called Gravity. That's going to be a social media alternative that probably be closer to Discord plus Twitter than it would be to Facebook. Uh, but that's, that's one of my plans. Uh, I have a variety of other business, especially me and John like to scheme all the time. Sonny and I scheme about stuff. Um, realistically, what I'd like to do, I guess, is that the things that I really legitimately care about are philosophical problems or large scale social problems, uh, that I really don't think people are good at understanding the root causes of and thus cannot solve. So if you look at like, uh, what uh, something I'm very passionate about is like social media is so bad for people, right? Uh, you could look at the rates of mental health uh, problems that stem oh, yeah. from like 2008. It's, oh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I just so recently saw another bizarre but interesting graph that was like uh, the percentage of male virgins in the population tripled in 2008 from 2008 to now, which is bizarre until you look at all those graphs together. And it's like, well, very clearly like cell phones and social media are are terrible, right? So that's that's something I'm pretty passionate about. I'm very much passionate about like community building and how do we how do we get back to a more natural state of human life, social life, community life, stuff like that. I think the way you know what what Sunny and I uh, when I moved out here to work on Sunny with was uh, called we called it Nova, which is like an initiative towards changing the way we build housing and communities to be closer to what, you know, a hunter gatherer kind of thing would have been like. So building them around central communal areas, sharing more of the stuff, you know, not a, if you have an apartment complex, you have like 400 people crammed into a building, you don't need 400 microwaves in reality. 
right? Nobody's microwaving all day. You're never going to use all 400 at the same time. So you could probably cut the price of living if you made all the appliances communal or something like that. Uh, there, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff like that. But if you look at like apartments are bad for people's mental health, that kind of, I guess that's kind of the stuff is like people system problems, not just like people problems, not like a therapist and not like just system problems, like an engineer, but people systems. Oh, that's I, I kind of my you. thing. I get you. The interesting function of it is I was driving my, my wife, um, lost her keys and I needed to drive down to Phoenix and help her out. And I'm driving through there and it's like all this suburbia, you know, it's like too many cars, too much. It's all designed around cars and it's all, it just made me ill. I'm like, this is just like all the 80 years of intentionally bad development for somebody else's interests to be satisfied, which is the people who own the car companies and the gas companies and the, 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 the and the, real estate guys and it's like just it's a malinvestment and i'm like wow that is and it's like this the, the kicker is they have control of the political apparatus so that if you want to build your hunter gatherer you know idealized community it's like oh you know you're not zoned for that man and that's it's very disturbing but it's like okay yes. i don't see unless you choose to apply yourself to solving such problems or even articulate the problem in a public way it won't ever get fixed so you have to you have to No, and that's people pick the wrong part you know people pick the wrong part of it to solve so you could look at like for example um one of the big things that uh, there's like and I, I we don't need to get into the whether this is a good thing or a bad thing people the viewer i'll let the viewers draw their own conclusions but for example you have like the fat acceptance movement or healthy at any size that kind of stuff which is a response to the note, you know, the decreasing uh, or increasing levels of obesity and stuff. So you could try and solve that problem by saying, oh, people are being treated badly. So we should change the way that people treat people. We could change that problem by saying, oh, well, uh, people should diet or exercise more, right? Or you could look at all the way at the end of that, which is like, well, what's the, uh, what are the root causes? Why are people sedentary? Why are they eating this high, uh, high fructose corn syrup shit? What is a what is a natural diet look like, and how far away are we from that being the norm? Because that's how I, I try to look at problems. It's like what is the root cause? What does nature say? What would we be doing a million years ago? Because that is a consistent very uh, that's a consistent thing to look at as a reference, right? You know, because people Baseline. people evolved. You know, we have like three million years of hunting and gathering. That's consistent. That's a sustainable thing. So while we also need to experiment, and I love having air conditioning for one, right? I'm not I'm not a luddite by any means. We do need to look at hey, what are these these old things are natural and necessary for mental health and and physical health and community health and all that kind of stuff, and how do we how do we balance the two out? You know, because I think that's that's the kind I think that's the. Uh, what I think uniquely about, or at least that the, what I don't see a lot of other people doing that I try to do is look at really, really big systemic problems from like a first principles perspective. And I don't, most people either look at big systemic problems or they pick small things and go first principles with them, but it's like the people system problems. And I really don't see many people try like addressing correctly as far as I see it. It's a difficult one. And it is a, it is a, philosophical angle on it i think is because it is how do you um, integrate the microscopic and the macroscopic 
elements of being a human being all at the same time. It's tough, man. As above, so that's, below, right? <laughs> that's, that's right. One of the things I was um, talking to James Connors about was um, I'm trying to develop with him, um, and, and he agreed to do it, we haven't started yet, is to develop uh, linguistic tools to talk about um, what he calls him ecological psychology, which is the, uh, it's on a human scale, but I wanna, I wanna make this conversation be scalable across all scales of existence. So from uh, subatomic to cosmic scales about the interaction between the thing and the environment in which it sits. So we could look at the human being, or we could look at a uh, rock, or we could look at, um, say, a group of human beings or all humanity in an evolutionary scale, and how those information is transduced to create the uh, effects that we see. That's that's what I'm interested in doing, because it's like, I think that will be useful for this conversation that you're, because it is difficult to make that scaling function in a operational sense. Like, because what am I going to do about it, right? That's the ultimate question. That's something I've been thinking about a lot is if you think, I, first off, the I, I guess this is one of my central premises that I consider to be somewhat unique in a sense. I guess I don't hear a lot of people talking about this is I really don't think it's supposed to be this hard to live in the world. I really don't think it is. Which is a bit of a like that's kind of a that's kind of a crazy thought if you think about it. How old is right now? How old are you right now? Uh, twenty six. Okay, so like when I was about twenty five, I'm driving across the country and I'm like, you know, you you can't stop anywhere unless you're paying somebody. You, it's like, whoa, that's not right. <laughs> that's just not right. It's like that seems obtuse, and I didn't like it. And it disturbed me a great deal. So I kept on driving, right? It's like, but, but it's like, you, you, you can't rest your bones anywhere unless you're paying rent. And it's like, okay, that's the way it goes. And it's like, it does seem like it's excessively difficult. Cause you know, like, this is the thing that people, th people look back and they're like, hunter gathering times would have been really hard and shit. You know, it's be, it'd be terrible. You know how easy it is to hunt big animals? Like we're so good at hunting megafauna that they're all extinct like we killed all of them it's not even it's not even hard like the what people don't understand pack hunting with with like the ability to communicate where you can tell like hey we have a spear and we're gonna go hunt that big thing that doesn't have any natural predators and we can communicate and trick it it's like so effective it's not even funny it's so easy that you just killed all of them we just killed all the megafauna right and so they said the average hunter gatherer person worked an average of three hours a day, right? And so imagine you go like run around for three hours, you stab a big old thing, and then you just get to eat like the best meat in the world. Is this free range, grass fed, grass finished, like bison or or uh, you know like a woolly mammoth? Or can you imagine how good woolly mammoth must have tasted? Like this big giant fatty animal. Oh my god! So when you think about that, it's like. Okay, so you guys literally just hung out all day. You pretty much just like ate and then made like pottery or you did some art and danced and played some music or whatever, sang songs. It's like everybody was having a great time, you know, for a, by and large. The average lifespan was the same. 
So, you know, other than infant mortality is much higher, but that's like right. a recent thing that we're starting to solve because of big ass heads. Um, but realistically, you, you were going to have an awesome time. You're probably going to do some mushrooms and talk to the ancestors. It was great, right? Everyone had a great time. We got so far away from that. We think it's progress. If you look at like, yeah, uh, transmissible uh, diseases are largely related to uh, like, uh, like the kind of diseases that we have. So many of them come from farm animals, right? <laughs> like, like plagues and stuff, uh, you know, cow pox, chicken pox, small pox. Uh, and yeah, it all, all these come from like uh, domesticating animals, which is something we didn't have to do when we were hunting the megafauna, but we hunted them too well, right? Um, which is actually, that's a uniquely human problem is that we take more than we need. Um, whereas like a wolf doesn't, you know, wolf's not going to go kill all your sheep. He's going to go kill a sheep and eat your sheep. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to genocide your sheep, right? Um, so it's weird because it's like, we're not evolved for this nonsense. It's not, nobody's, nobody's evolved to get cyber bullied on Instagram, right? <laughs> it's not, it's a novel thing. You're not good at that. And it kills people. It like it regular bullying. Yeah, you can do it. It's not that bad. Cyberbullying. Nope. There's some kind of like dysregulation of like normal empathy stuff that limits how cruel you're going to be. It's way worse. It's dramatically worse. It's bad. Well, no, it's it's the bad. Interesting, the interesting function of that um, appears to be the intentional engineering of the social media to act in a manner that is uh, similar to uh, addictive substances. It's designed mm -hmm. to be that way. And so it's like this, it's like the thing that addicts you also um, like desensitizes you to the humanity on the other side of the wire. And, and it's makes them more, it's, it's, it's they're addicted to the thing that, that has turned the ultimate sour to them, right? It's just awful. Mm -hmm. There's, there's definitely much work to be done to uh, solve problems that are related to that whole business. We're, we are in a difficult state here, just transitioning to this digital paradigm. Yeah, it's, um, it's problematic because the, the incentive structures of society are so bad, right? They're so, so very far against uh, I like to say, you know, if somebody's incentive structure involves their, uh, they, if somebody's getting paid to do something bad, they're never going to stop doing it, right? Uh, for example, like, right, I, I, I would bet good money that it's very unlikely that anyone on the board of Philip Morris smokes, right? It's very unlikely that anyone who runs Philip Morris, which is a cigarette company, right, or a tobacco company, it's very unlikely they smoke. It's very unlikely that anyone on the board of McDonald's eats McDonald's. More than, more than as a token thing occasionally, right? And probably not at all. It's very unlikely that the people on the board of Coke drink Coke every day, right? And so you have these big companies where it's obviously they know better than to use their own products on a daily basis, right? But they're totally okay with other people doing that, right? Can you imagine, like, can you imagine what kind of mental gymnastics you have to go through to be on the board of Philip Morris and be like, live to live with yourself at all to know you're making poison because you know it's a, the problem is people think it's like oh well it's about personal responsibility moderation it's like you're making addictive shit man you're making things that are you know that is it, it is it the fault of heroin addicts or addicted to heroin or do we 
decide, hey, actually, if we go shoot the heroin dealer, there's not going to be any more heroin in town, right? right. That's what, well, how far do we take our responsibility for that? Because it's like at a certain point, it's not you can't just blame the the victim or the person who's now addicted to this thing, especially with social media where they designed it to be that way, right? It's like fentanyl. It's like fentanyl is designed to be more addictive than heroin, right? It's stu- it's super heroin, and it kills you at the time. So. No, I, I don't. I, I kind of reject that. It's like the, the issue with the street drugs versus the uh, pharmaceutical drugs, right? Because it was all oxycodone and narcotics that were gen- manufactured. And then they, they, mm-hmm. they squeezed the living hell out of the doctors and the patients and they put it pretty much pushed everybody onto the street. And it's like, okay, the problem with the street drugs compared to the pharmaceuticals that are manufactured is we have quality control. Even if it is manufacturing the same poison, at least it's predictable poison. And the thing that kills you with when you're taking um, street drugs is, oh, it's a little bit more pure than you anticipated and you're done. Yeah. And it's like, it's all very predictable. And I'm like, okay, I, 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 I don't think I will comment anymore on that. It's just, it's reprehensible. I think that we would do better with a regulated marketplace if you're going to allow it. You know what I mean? I just think it's better. Oh yeah, yeah. Legalize it, decriminalize it. I I, I personally think that's the case, and I think we should tri- shift away from from criminality to treatment. Simply because you look at like com- countries have done that, like Chile has uh, has done that, and their uh, overall usage rates drop significantly. Their recidivism rates drop significantly. People are doing way better. It's like you. It's if you look at addiction as what it is, which is ultimately a symptom of a mental illness or some kind of societal dysregulation in which yeah. you don't fit into society. Yeah. What do you do? Throw them in a box and forget about, about them and let them. Right. Yeah. Right. We got so to like, treat Portugal them. did this. Portugal did this. Maybe it's Portugal. It yeah, it was some no. South American country. Portugal's. Yeah, it's incredible. Portugal. It's incredible. You yeah. know, Spain, man, come on. Oh, it's a, so it's more than just that. No, it's okay. I was thinking Portuguese. Which is I know. A, I just, yeah. I just that that was for the audience, man. It wasn't. To yeah. punch in it's also Chile. Chile did that as well. I know it was some uh, one of the larger South American countries did, and it was very successful. It's it's very interesting. So it's like the, you know, when you have, um, I don't know, it's asking a lot. I think you, I think you have to allow communities to um, exclude certain practices that are objectionable to them on some moral basis. You know what I mean? Because it's like they, they have, they have a firmly founded moral belief that that doesn't work and that's problematic. We don't want that to be in our neighborhood that they get to exclude it. You know? So, yeah, I agree. Uh, one is one of the things I'm very big on that is also, that's something that, that the seem to like Nicholas, the seem to has commented on is uh, he has this concept of fractal localism which is effectively um, the opposite of what we have now, where you, right now we have a, some ostensib, uh, ostensibly global powers that have influence above that of federal governments. And then you have federal governments that have enormous amounts of influence on state governments, which have very little power. And there are local governments who basically get nothing. And then you have the individual in the household who is SOL, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Flip it, flip it. So the idea of uh, fractal localism is that the end you, unit, you, right? right? You and your, you should be, have perfect sovereignty over yourself. You should have high levels of sovereignty over your household. 
and your local community. Uh, I personally think everyone should have like town councils or like village elders or something like that. I think that's cool and it sounds cool. So it's, <laughs> I like the aesthetic uh, for aesthetic reasons. I like that, you know, everyone gets like a robe and they go sit in a circle and I don't know, but the, uh, and then you'd have your, like your city or your township and then your city, then the state, and then the federal government would have limited power. And then if there's some kind of global thing, it'd be very, very weak. And, but however, there are certain issues that you can only deal with at scale. Like, um, do I think that every individual human being should have a nuclear weapon? No, probably not. Are nuclear weapons uh, a useful uh, large scale land conflict deterrent? It seems to be so, right? So probably not getting rid of nukes. Uh, so I, and we probably shouldn't have them on the lowest level. So maybe leave that at the top and prevent the land conflicts, you know. But I like that idea because it, it, it puts more of the power back on you and your community. So this, this brings me to a question that I would have for you, which is this related to um, etymological phenomena that I just discovered recently which is about 1600, 1650 or so, the term consciousness was created, okay? Which is made of two, two roots with knowledge, okay? And I don't know the roots right off the top of my head. One is calm and the other is like, I couldn't tell you. Uh, scientia is, is knowledge. Uh, yeah. So the Marsoc, the most the Marsoc schoolhouse, uh, Victoria Perscientia is a yeah, victory through, through knowledge. Or through understanding. So that's 1600. So about 200 years prior to that, the word science came out, which is related to the same basic thing, which is how do we find knowledge? But 200 years before that, the same root words, conscientia, or conscientia was, was articulated as uh, conscientiousness. So knowledge of good and evil awareness of right and wrong so there's like you see this what has happened in 1200 they invent that one which is awareness of right and wrong as part of my well what later became stripped of morality and is now mere consciousness absent morality and science is the way it operates without moral basis or moral foundation and it's like i think that's the problem so I'm like this, I'm like, I'm asking people and I'm going to start asking them on my podcast and you're the first one. It's like this, it seems like there's a lot of people talking about wisdom. Okay. And that's how it goes to your um, village elders, right? Wisdom. What is wisdom? How do we define wisdom and how do we, how do we articulate what the, what is wisdom and who's wise and how do we know who's wise? Is there a way that we can do that in a systematic manner? Yeah. Okay. So there's, a, I have so much to say on this topic. So bear with me. Uh, we may, I'm going to revisit that question. Cause you said some stuff before that, that'll lead yeah. into that. Sure. Okay. So my big, uh, there's two ways we could look at this. I'll give you the big picture one and then I'll give you a small picture one. Now small picture first, it'll make more sense. Uh, my big complaint with most of modern society is based. I think the enlightenment, the, everything that came out of the enlightenment was inevitable, but ultimately a lot of the foundational thinking is a mistake and wrong. They got a lot of stuff wrong. So what I think uh, happened is effectively the uh, first off calling it the enlightenment was pretentious as hell. It's the same thing. If you've ever met a person who's been enlightened, it's like, if you've ever met a person who's recently enlightened, it's like, 
pretentious as hell. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, man. I did some acid at a Grateful Dead concert and I understand, you know, like you guys are ready for all this, you know, no, it's not that cool. But enlightenment. I, I personally don't think enlightenment, like in the Buddhist kind of Eastern sense is even a big deal. I think it's a I, thing that you got to do, but I think it's like not, there's a, there's a quote, uh, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water during enlightenment, chop wood, carry water after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, which is like, you're going to think this is really cool. It's not, you just need to keep doing your work. Right. Um, so the, the point of this being I, what I believe happened, what I think has been happening as a result of human society for a long time, you could trace this back even to the Greeks and perhaps further back. Um, we've had the, the mind body dichotomy split and yep. this splits, uh, rationality from emotions, right? This is also a physiological thing because you're the left brain has the Broca and the Wernicke's region, I believe, are the, the speaking parts of the brain, right? right. The language centers. Um, those are only on one side of your brain. So if you ever did see like split brain experiments and stuff, the, uh, the speaking part of the brain cannot communicate with the other one. And this part of the, you know, the, the right part of the brain, the creative side, uh, is where emotions and stuff kind of live. And they just don't communicate very well. And they do different things. So you have hem hemispheric lateralization of function, right? Um, this, I think, is something I, I think like an individual's kind of neurology or, or physiology also projects onto the world in a sense. So if you look at like, and it's weird in that sense, but like East and West, uh, Eastern and Western culture are kind of, you know, more right brain, more left brain in a weird way. Uh, and so I don't, I, I won't get into why I think that is the case. It's interesting. I don't really have a rationale for it, but the, what we did effectively with the enlightenment is we said, Hey, Hey, you remember all those, you know, like in, in the 1400s, you could point at the sky when it's raining and say, Oh man, I, that lightning is because Thor is hitting his anvil, right? That's a kick-ass explanation for the record. That's a cool explanation. It's, there's some meaning behind that. You can draw meaning out of that, even if it's not literally correct. It makes your life better. However, now, you know, Benjamin Franklin is uh, told you it's, you know, there's electricity because of charged particles in the air or some shit. And we lose, we gain a literal understanding, but we lose the why, right? And that's what the Enlightenment did. We got all of this knowledge. And we lost the why. We lost the emotional component of it, which is basically, and this is effectively what I think we did is we demonized the feminine because the feminine ways of knowing and of, of interacting with the world, which is, you know, intuition and emotion and, and you know, the depths of creativity and stuff like that. That's something that we've said no longer has value based off of the enlightenment. We said, only things that we can logically literally prove are true and everything else is bullshit right left brain, left brain. yeah yep what do we get what do we get we get a world of cubicles we get soul crushing efficiency with no regard for the human we get stupid ass truck stops everywhere in the country that look identical and and uh strip malls right and fast food restaurants and it's just disgusting and it's poison to the soul right we've killed the feminine because the feminine is where we get zest for life right the uh that that other sort of knowing losing that is killing everyone right and people can't acknowledge it because to acknowledge that is to understand that the world is not simply something that can be quantified and put into boxes right there's a deeper sort of knowledge or wisdom even that is not touchable with the rational mind, right? right. So for example, it's if beyond you notice- articulation. Uh, Beyond articulation. Yeah, 
it's it's an experience. It's the the reality of sub, the subjective nature of consciousness, right? The subjective experience itself cannot be quantified, and so that's where we get. You probably noticed this. There are so many fucking scientists. There's so many of these guys trying to say consciousness is an illusion. We can't prove consciousness exists. Is this a simulation we're living in, right? Why, why do we do that? Why are we trying to prove that? Because we can't measure subjective experience. And everyone who tries to deny the reality of the subjective experience creates horrible things, right? Behaviorism is terrible, right? The red pill as a psychological phenomenon is, you know, is evolutionary psychology, which is pretty legit, combined with behaviorism, which is nightmare fuel, right? And it creates this disgusting dehumanizing philosophy that demonizes the feminine because that's how it always works right so as long as we deny emotions the importance of emotions the importance of this deep kind of thing we're going to keep destroying everything because that and, and it's ironic because what we get like if you look at feminism it, what femi feminism actually is is a masculinized version of uh, of the female experience right it's like oh well we're gonna we're gonna write it out like it's a logical argument and all that stuff and it's like oh it's not You're, it's an emotional argument filtered in through this like this language and you've taken out the soul of it you've taken you've killed the feminine right in the in right. the pursuit of competing in this masculine field and the, that's the problem that, like the complaints are valid the way that the, the men are running this stuff there's lots of problems with it because they're also denying the, ne the necessity of the genuinely feminine right and that's the part we just don't get it. People haven't can't relate to the subjective experience that you know, like the importance of love, because that's a subjective thing that makes the world make sense, right? If you don't have that, okay, well, everyone's out to get you, and family's not important, and all of these things, right? And right. so we have all these generations of people starved of these subjective emotions. You know, they don't get to have love and uh, belonging and uh, meaningful shit because we commoditize the world. And then you wonder why people rail against it because they're railing against something they don't understand and they can't understand it because it's subjective and you have to experience it. Hell yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a rant, man. That's it's right. It's right on the money. Cause it is, it's like the, uh, it's a deracination. I, I regard it as like the uh, unplugging of us from traditional moorings that uh, work to keep everything working together and us, you know, functioning on this planet and making it go. And uh, I don't, I regard it as an intentional function by people who were bullying everybody about because they gain benefit from doing so. That would be the psychopaths in, uh, you know, upper level suites of management. Mm. Right? And it's like, and it's, you know, well, what's that mean? Okay. I, I think you can't keep the, um, you can't keep the genie in the bag you know it's like that it's going to get out of the lamp no matter how you slice it because it's unavoidable because it wants mm -hmm. the human the human will will figure a way out because it's like it's this unbearable and it looks like madness because it is you driving them mad because it's like it will make you mad i you know you you you're working in the same cubicle every day and it's like what am i doing this for right and it, it, it's like you know watching the hourglass drain away the time that is your life it's like this isn't madness right like you're driving four hours to and from painting all day like man that is just it's just hellish people ask me because they're like oh do you they're surprised i live in this little town i live in it's a it's a 90 minute 
or at least an hour to the nearest suburban, you know, oasis, I guess, out of the, because I'm in the mining district. And it's like, I'm too lazy to be driving three hours a day. To, I'm not going to do it. I'm not, because I just, I, I drive 15 minutes to work and I think that's excessive myself. Because when I, when I envision being a physician, a country physician, I just wanted to get a building and, and work downstairs. I don't want to do any of that, man. I just want to just be a country doctor. I don't need to run around and be crazy and drive crazy cars. And and that used to work. You know, you think about it, like, obviously, the sophistication of the medical education was nowhere near what it is now. And yet, doctors still were able to do their jobs. And you could go have house calls and have personal relationships with people. And guess what? They weren't bankrupted every single time anything happened. Right? It's like, how much, of the, how much of that too with the medical field is us like denying the nature of reality? It's like how many things, hey, maybe people just die. You know, maybe, maybe no, maybe we don't need a $15 million surgery to figure out how to you know, bring this robot in. You know what the trick is, is as, it, as, it, as it has been done is the public has abdicated their financial responsibility and handed it to insurance companies for the purpose of managing that liability and the assets and and they just ran the prices way up and and they made it subsidized they know it's subsidized now the people have no money so they can't they don't have the responsibility for hiring their own doctor so they don't they don't even get to choose what they're doing it's just it's like it's god awful because the the financial element of it is controlling the the patients and the providers and it's like they're overpaying the providers for the services they provide and they're you know, the people are all scared and having this crazy emotional response to being having a problem. And they've heard some crazy thing and it cost $10 million and they don't know what that means. And it's like they're not paying and they know it. And they're they're grateful for the opportunity to uh, be the beneficiary of the largesse that is provided. And it's like, well, it's just an organizational mess is all it is. And it's benefiting the people who control the money, in my opinion. Right. And everybody else is serving their interests by, you know, on one side of the equation or the other. It's just it's rotten. It's just it's it's rotten. And it's like the only way to rectify that is for the people to take responsibility for their own health and well-being. And it's, mm-hmm. it's nothing new. It's well, like, and it's it's all preventative stuff, like 90 percent of stuff that people go to the doctor for. If you just like eight. Uh, species appropriate diet. I really like that phrase, by the way. That's a, the carnivore. The carnivore community came up with that. Um, the species appropriate diet, because that's like everyone gets that. It's like, oh yeah, well, dogs eat a species appropriate diet, and unless you're feeding your dog human food, they right. don't get fat. They don't get messed up. You know, you or like those people that feed their cats vegan diets, and the cats die all the time. It's oh. like. that's the first i've heard of that one (laughs) just it's very it's freakishly it's actually very very sad uh because people do it a lot and they think it's ethical but they're killing their animals it's madness they'll like go blind and their fur falls out and they die it's bad because they're because they're predators they need to eat meat right and guess what so are we and i can prove that with like tons and tons and tons of science but the uh it's it's unfortunate it's unfortunate because the way that we have everything set up is just I like the last hundred years have been probably the greatest like series of just general misinformation or ju- just a widespread misunderstanding by the means of science like I think yeah look at use of the institutions to project bad information into the public for purposes that are not for the benefit of the public how about that 
Oh yeah. Look at, um, food. Food is the one I'm so big about because I, I've watched just tons and tons and tons of food documentaries and stuff like, uh, before, before the dust bowl, we had this one kind of wheat that was totally fine. And I don't think it really was that bad for people, but during the dust bowl, the regular wheat was dying. So we combined the normal wheat with Japanese wheat and it created the super wheat that, and then we started using, uh, like, uh, what, what, before Roundup, what it was the DDT uh, during the Dust Bowl. And then we had this generation of people that was like hemophilic huh. because of the DDT. They, they weren't before. And that's, there's like a genetic component. Now the offspring are also hemophilic. And it's like, how much of this shit is stuff that we messed up in the last hundred years? You know, how much, I mean, and it, you can look at these numbers, like the diabetes, which was unheard that uh, it's type two is the, the onset one, right? The, um, there were like three or four mentioned cases of type two diabetes in all of recorded history until we discovered sugar, like sugar cane in the 1500s or something. Like it was a freak thing. It just is a, a nonsense freak thing. And now it's like one of the most common causes of illness, right? Oh, it's very it's what? A big industry. Yeah. And it's so, all eating the wrong food. Yeah. I mean, but this is the thing we can kind of like everyone understands these things, right? However, you can't, and this is the, the thing where I push back again. And actually it's ironic that I do so because my blog is called master self and my, like the tagline for the website is master yourself, save the world. Right. Uh, or save the world, master yourself rather. Uh, the it's, there's a certain point where we cannot rely on the willpower and the self-reliance of the average person to fix these problems. You cannot do it. Because, man, it's fucking hard. It's like, look, I, you know, fasting. If you're, you're talking about curing all this stuff, nobody needed to know how to, like, if you're, you say you're 400 pounds, the only way, like the fastest way you're going to lose 400 pounds, you can just not eat for 300 days, right? And your body's able to do that. But the amount of willpower required to do that, I know like one person in recorded history who's done that long of a fast, he did like 387 days or something like that, which is insane. It was medically supervised as well in the 70s, but um like the, the average person doesn't it should not require infinite titanic amounts of willpower to live a healthy normal life right we made it so hard so so difficult to live a healthy normal life right right if it, you know oh you need to be able to resist infinite advertising you're going to drive past temptation every second of every day and these billboards and the radio ads are going to scream at you basically without your consent on your fucking phone to your kids, magazines, on your computer, every second of every day, people are trying to give you poison or whatever. It's insane. No, 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 they want to sell it to you. They're going to sell Yeah, they want to sell you poison. You're going to pay for this punishment, right? Yes. And so this is, it's, it's not, it should not be like this, right? It's wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong about this. This, this is a moral argument. I like that. This is more than a moral argument. It's a well, functional no. argument, it's a, right? It's well, like not, the, but the, the solution part, the should part is moral that's how i look at should and shouldn't as a moral argument that's a that's a moral domain right so i would say yeah i would say there's a there are multiple components so there's a moral sure. argument which is it shouldn't be like this there's a functional argument which is if we're going to fix it it is not going to be fixed simply by having people develop in in, in no, no, I agree. power overnight I agree. right there's there's a there's a oh so the, this this would be the argument for um the localism and um, moral um, governance 
So political, which is, you know, is ultimately force. We can force the people who are bringing the um, toxins in to get out, right? The, the, the pernicious influence will be removed from our community because we will force them to do so by police action. I mean, yeah, if you could, that would be incredible if you could do it. We could do it. Yeah, uh, it's like, look, it's the same thing as like, if you have a neighborhood where a drug dealer shows up, right? You have a nice neighborhood. I'm, I'm sorry, but you can either wait for the cops to fix it or you can say, hey, I really don't want this guy selling crack to my kids. Or there's my a, neighbor's there's kids. a story. I'm going to tell you a story. I ran into a patient, young guy, and his, his brother was a, um, he lived in California and he was a motocross. Uh, he was a, made of money doing that. He was getting money from it. I am. And um, he said he got tied up. He's getting methamphetamines or something. And so this guy just went to every dealer that he knew in town. He says, if you sell my brother stuff, I will kill you. Any questions? And it was like, nobody's going to sell him any stuff anymore. And it's like, okay, I don't know how well that worked because I haven't seen him for many years. And it's like, but it is, I don't know what else you can do. Because it's like to depend on, the, I have another fellow that complains of it. There's a, a guy that's doing this next door to him in my town. And it's like, they're selling the stuff. And it's like, the police are like just observing. And I don't know, watching the comings and goings for their own purposes, right? To get bigger fish, maybe, who knows? You know, it's like, so it's like there, there are wheels turning that don't make sense, right? It's like, it doesn't make sense. What, you know, how, how do you resolve the problem in your backyard, right? And it's- And that's, that's because ultimately one of the things that I've discovered in the kind of my personal journey, which I detailed a bit of, but I didn't really get into like the psychological parts of that. That's an entirely different topic. But out of the blog is there is a finite, uh, there, there's a point in the journey of like self-improvement, self-mastery where your capacity to do, if you want to pull like a Jordan Peterson thing, he's like, well, you increase, you increase the uh, amount of order that you can maintain until it starts to encompass other people, bucko. Uh, but like, there's, there's a certain point where in the process of self, self-improvement, self-mastery, you actually have to start taking responsibility for the people around you. That's right. Right. And obviously, I think I personally think from a moral or philosophical perspective, everyone should internalize the notion that everything in the world is my fault and is everything in the world is my job to solve. Right. right. Or at least that's the goal to strive towards. It's impossible to do that all the time. Right. right? Or even a well. Uh, but but if you look at that as that's the moral ideal is how can I take responsibility for the problem, every single problem in the world and act from that position? you're moving in the right direction. And that means that it's not just, at a certain point, it's not just you. Like one of the things for me, I quit drinking because I realized, oh, it's not just about me drinking. It's about the example that I'm setting for other people when I drink that I'm setting them up to, to uh, you know, if other people do bad stuff because they're drinking, I'm making it harder for them to, or easier for them to do that, right? Or um, stuff like that in that vein is like, the my that's actually why I got this this tattoo, uh, which is the uh, the sword of Damocles. Huh. Um, as I was the, basically, that yeah, yeah. So the for for the viewer, um, there's a story, a Greek story, I believe, where there's a king and he's got all these concubines and they're feasting and they're having a good time. And this young guy Damocles runs up. He's like, "Why do you get all this nice stuff? I want some nice stuff." And uh, the king's like, "Oh, cool, sure, let's do it." Let's, uh, you can be king for a day and see how you like it. He's like, oh, great. All right. I deserve it. So next day shows up, 
and um, he gets all this food and all the concubines. He's ha- having a good time. But uh, the king is like, actually, here's the catch. I'm going to tie up the sword hanging from a horsehair above the throne where only you can see it. And while you have all this fun, you're just going to know that at any moment that string could break and the sword will kill you instantly, right? right. And so Damocles gets really uncomfortable. Eventually he runs away in terror, right? Because he can't he, handle that. And so the notion of that, why I, why I like that story is A, leadership is not, is not a, a, a reward, it's a punishment but it's a it's a necessary one you have to be able to like accept that other people rely on you and you have to take responsibility for them and and that's very very important right right? and so with self-improvement that at a certain point you do realize like it's not enough like yes every per in a perfect world every single person would self-improve to the point that they could be 100 percent responsible all the time right i can't do that nobody i don't know anyone who can it's not it's not happening, right? However, there are some people who are never going to be able to even main, uh, achieve a functional level of, of uh, responsibility, right? It's just not, not likely to happen. And we can say, well, oh, it's their job to do that. And it is, it doesn't matter because if it's not gonna happen, we still have to take responsibility for that and act accordingly. And that's ultimately what I think leadership is. It's like, there's a, there's a story in... Um, Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene, where he talks about this sea captain in the late 18, early 1900s. Uh, he, they go on this expedition to the Arctic or wherever, and they get snowed in and their boat gets frozen in the Arctic over the winter. And so it's like dark for months, right? There's like barely any daylight because they're up north. And it's right. freezing. And so they talk about why, why they survived because they survived. It's like six or nine months of just winter. Um, because every single day, the captain would go around and talk to every single one of the men, figure out where their mental state was, and he would adjust their workload based off how well they were doing. And he, because of that ability for him to change the responsibility levels that he expected of people, which is, I expect you to do as much as you can do, not as much as I want you to do, right? And to be able to monitor people's states and, and do that accordingly, that is the essence of what it is, right? A, a person of a high enough level of self-mastery has to be able to recognize in other people like, hey, I can't have the same expectations for everyone, right? right. Um, look at the, par- the parable of the talents, right? Like, um, you know, the master gives one dude a dollar uh, and yep. one dude 10 bucks and one dude 100 bucks. And the guy with 100 bucks goes and invests it and he makes a million. The guy with 10 bucks invests it, he makes 100 bucks. And, and the master's like, hey, good job. You guys did a good job. The guy with a dollar buries it and he's like, no, you're not supposed to bury it. You're supposed to do something with that. Even if it's only a dollar, you need to go try. And then he kicks a guy out. And it's like, that's, that's the point is that we should be, you know, we should, you should try as hard as you can with what you can do. Whether that's, you know, if you're going to go be Wim Hof and be the guy that can run up Everest with just shorts on, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I don't care. I've done some crazy stuff by most people's standards. I'm not doing that. <laughs> But it's it's what what can you do with what you've been given, right? Right, right. I think that's that's it. And ultimately, what can you do for the people who have been given less, right? How do you how do you take responsibility for them to to um, uh, right manage the conditions such that they're going to keep them from harm, right? Mm -hmm. 
that's about as good. Yeah, as- sometimes and that, sometimes I think that means shooting the crack dealer. Like from an ethical perspective, so I I think you do have to shoot the crack dealer. Like I don't know. Um, I I understand that as a metaphor. Okay, just for uh, I'm I I don't know how serious I am about that to be honest. Uh, I, I, I you might be. I'm like uh, just. It's a hypothetical. Well, if you think about it, like, you know, I, I know, I'm thinking about it. I have thought about it. So I don't want to speak of it really, though. <laughs> Just like this, like it's 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 um, it, it's broaching the unspeakable. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And it's OK. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, it's, 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 it's in, in all human negotiation, the, the propensity for violence must remain on the table. OK. I, or I would even say that in all human negotiation, the propensity for violence is always on the table. Whether, whether or not people are cognizant of that. Uh, somebody, there's a, some, there's a quote that I like, uh, and I, I, I'm not some person with a great propensity for violence anyway, so it's not like I, I'm like, I, it's entirely possible, I'm just talking shit here. Uh, but <laughs> there's a, and I, but I'm cognizant of that, so I think that's the important part, right? <laughs> there's a quote that's uh, something along the lines of like, savages uh, have a greater appreciation for manners because the likelihood of them getting their throat ripped out is quite a bit higher than among civilized folk or something. I, I kind of butchered that, but you get they, the gist. They it's say like, that in Arizona, everybody's armed and it makes for a polite society. That seems to be the case. If you presume that everybody is armed and dangerous and, and mind your manners, everything will be better. Oh, I mean, think about it. It's like how much, how much, of a, uh, how much discussion on Facebook uh, or, or like the YouTube comment section or some, some disgusting cesspool oh, of like... How much of that would be solved if it was like, oh yeah, you have to say that to that person's face, <laughs> you know? That's right. That's right. Well, that's a good start, Garrett. We've done well. We've covered some bases, and it's like this this conversation. It's related to the uh, reapplication of the morality to the process of thinking and how we reintegrate this. The this you call it the feminine with the masculine, the um, right brain with the left brain. That's the chaos in order. Right, and get things properly balanced. I think that's good. And it's like, but it's, it's, it is, it's a wheel, wheel is way out of kilter right now. The wheel, we, you, go ahead. You can see, uh, you can see this as a theme in culture with stuff like in, in Star Wars, it's like, oh, you have to bring balance to the force, right? Because that's the weird part. They don't really touch on this at any great depth in the movies, as far as I remember, but they don't say, oh, the light side of the force needs to win, right? Yoda's like, bring balance to the force, you must, right? That's that's really interesting because it's like, obviously the dark side of the force in this case is the is, it's the empire, it's empirical, it's orderly, it's very regimented, all their stuff is gray and black and drab and boxed in, right? And then you have like the weird rebel kind of more creative, yeah, ragtag band of people that that is, uh, in a sense, is also a like kind of there's a feminine component to that. And I, I actually generally, with the context of the earlier part of that, I think it's worth saying feminine. I normally say chaos and order because there is both masculine chaos and feminine chaos. Masculine chaos would be like fascism, right? Feminine chaos would be like um, probably I don't know some like tribal tribal society where they eat eat Dionysus. Uh, I don't know. It's different. And then like. Uh, Feminine order is different too, because there is like a naturally feminine kind of um, higher, not like non-hierarchical hierarchical system, like a flat, uh, more egalitarian hierarchical system. And then like masculine 
order is obviously hierarchical and very clean and regimented. So there's there are is both a feminine chaos and a masculine chaos. It doesn't it's not that clean of a break. Uh, however, I do think in regards to the rationality thing, we really did demonize the feminine specifically. And that's why we have this hyper-masculine worldview of hyper-rationality, which itself has now become chaotic, which, you know, so chaos isn't purely feminine because I do normally. And I, tell you, I tell you, it is. It's like hyper-rational, but it's like, it's, it's like, it's like, it's what we know. And it's like, I can cause... I know that I can cause people to believe things that are false and it will benefit me greatly. And that's the chaos mm. of it. It's like, just, just like, just goes into just industrial lying. Oh yeah. And it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking because it's like the worst part, you know, I'm, uh, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right. Which is, uh, that's Christ on the cross as he's, you know, he, to, to God basically he says, Hey, it's, they don't get what they're doing. It's not their fault. Right. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like, I really don't think the average person, even I, I like maybe the CEOs of these companies, I, I have hold them to higher standards because I assume they're higher functioning people. But it's like, how many of these people really understand the implications of what they're doing? Because I, I think if they did, they wouldn't do it, right? I really don't. But it's like hard to, you know, if all your incentives in the world prevent you from seeing something, you know, it's uh, easier easier to thread a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. That's the notion of incentives, right? Is the rich man has every reason in the world not to want to give his money to the poor and stuff, and right? And it's like it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to see what you have an incentive not to see, right? Yeah, that's right. It's probably the hardest right. to see that which you have incentive not to see, right? Right. If people don't stay in the cave because they're chained to the cave. They stay in the cave because they're making money on the people who are paying for shadows on the wall. Right. Like. That's right. So. That's it. That's it. But I okay. think ultimately part of we have to make a very good case and we have to make it easy to see that. And then also just not demonize people who are like that's part of the problem with like it, it, realistically, the really moral answer to shooting the crack dealer is actually you explain to the crack dealer why what he's doing is wrong and don't shoot him. Right. Or you make a good show, you make a good show of holding back someone who claims that he wants to shoot him. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, <laughs> it's just like shadows on the wall again, right? It's, a, it's yeah. all, uh, art and um, rhetoric and deception, and it all plays part of the uh, great, the great, the play. Yeah. Uh, what, what is it? Uh, all the world's a stage. That's we it. but merely players. Yeah. That was a wonderful. That's a wonderful ending. <laughs> Jared, I gotta run. I gotta go do my my CrossFit thing, and and I don't know what they're gonna have me do, but I will go do my best. There you go. I want to thank you for taking a minute with me and and uh, sharing with the audience. It was a uh, very fun yeah. Thanks show. for having me. We'll do it again. I love, I love this show. I love coming on here. We always have fun. Uh, so <laughs> I never know quite where it's gonna go either. <laughs> There's no possible way to know. There's no That's possible. Right. Way. It's the same thing with my life. I that's think that's, right. a, that's a recurring theme. That's it's right. just chaos, unadulterated chaos with some moments of clarity in between. All right. Well, I, I thank you again, and you have a wonderful evening, sir. You too. Thanks, Bradley. Bye-bye. Mm, I hope you enjoyed this episode of a, The Best Medicine Podcast with Bradley H. Werrell, D.O. Don't forget to hit like and subscribe below, either over there or over there. 
Also, if you're interested in a medical consultation with myself, there's also information below.